Back when I was in junior high, which is getting to be longer and longer ago, as you all know how that goes, I remember having a discussion with my older brother and this kind of debate. And this was when I was in junior high, so please don't hold me to the details. So if he comes back and contradicts me, maybe he's right. But this is kind of remember how I remember the conversation going. We were debating how church should be done. And he one time told me this. He said, listen, I went and I read the book of Acts. When I read the book of Acts, the way they did church is not how we do church. I don't even think we do it right at all. And so, today, as we continue on the book of Acts, you think about where we are. We, the churches began, right? It started. We received the Holy Spirit. The first group of people have begun sa- gotten saved. And now we're going to see, okay, this new thing has begun. The helper has come. The Spirit is here. How do we do this church thing exactly? How did they do it back then? And was my brother right when he said we do it completely wrong? Well, let's find out. So, if Rachel will help me a little bit out here, I think I might be back. So it said in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We kind of left there last week. These people were getting saved. They were being baptized. Things are being great. What are we going to do? We've been saved. We've been baptized. What is next? Verse 42, and they devoted themselves. It's like the idea of persistence, persevering. They were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, this fellowship is kind of an interesting word. Fellowship probably has the idea of mutual material support. We see the apostles teaching, and we don't really have apostles today, but we certainly do have teaching today. So as we go on and we look at this first example, we say, okay, do we have teaching? Yes. We have fellowship. We'll talk more about that later, and so maybe we, we certainly have it in a certain way, but do we have it like they did it? To the breaking of bread, which of course is communion, and we still do that. And the prayers, which we still do that. So I think we're doing okay so far. Now, as we think about this and we think about some of these essential elements that you do and you say, what is it that you do that is having church and why you do them? The reason we teach and preach is because that's what they did back then. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Why do we have fellowship? Why do we have this community? We get together. We do things sometimes that don't revolve around teaching. Well, that's what they did. Why do we have communion? That's what they did. Why do we always have prayers in our services? That's what they did. Now, does it have to be an hour long? Does it have to end by noon so we can make it to lunch? Of course, it doesn't have to have all those things, unless you're Steve Breckheisen. Apparently, he's giving me the heavy nod, yes, back there. <laughs> but in general, right, we wouldn't. But, but these elements are important. So we, we could have a three-hour service or... Or maybe we could just meet together for 15 minutes, and it might be okay too. And all came upon every soul, awe, this is the the word phobos, like fear almost, all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. You know, when something is so great and it's so 
awe-inspiring. It's almost like it's almost like fear, right? Like, boy, I better not cross this. Look how fantastic this is. You see a volcano explode. You're in awe of how amazing it is. And then what do you think? I better not get too close. Better not get too close. This is the idea as signs and wonders were being done. They had incredible awe. And we'll even see in the next chapter, when we get to chapter 3, some of these signs and wonders that were done and the awe, the fear that it created. Okay, so they're having miracles. We've kind of talked about the debate on the miracles, miraculous gifts, so on and so forth today, right? We've talked about that some. I don't want to rehash that this morning. It's necessarily a super key passage for that anyway. And then we go on. What else are they doing? And this is where things start getting interesting. All of it's interesting, but this is especially interesting in my opinion. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them, the proceeds to all, as any had in need. So when my brother read the book of Acts, I would bet a lot of money when he read this passage, when he read these few verses, he said to himself, is this really what we're doing? I don't think so. So, what does this mean? And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any that has had need. You didn't know you were going to come to church this morning and hear me talk about communism, did you? (laughs) Now, I'm going to try to say this. Not communism, but commune. Ism. Does that sound any better? Probably not. Okay. I mean, I, 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 there's no way to save it. So I'm going to kind of explain it like this. Let's start with like big C communism. So big C communism is like a hot big word. Like what's this big C communism? So big C communism was made up. It didn't exist until like the 1840s. Karl Marx came up with big C communism. Okay. It was a very incredibly idealistic of idea of how a government would run. It's just, it, it just, it just hoped for a utopia really, where no one would own anything, everyone have everything in common, you wouldn't even need a government anymore. It had very lofty ideas. As a matter of fact, Karl Marx popularized, popularized this slogan, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Each according to his ability, each according to his needs. And this was his ideal world. We all work as hard as we could, but then we only take what we need because he felt there was so much income inequality, it was terrible. And if all you did was had open capitalism, what would happen is the rich would get infinitely rich and the poor would be left out, they would be abused. And so he, it was kind of a revolt against industrialization because he saw the rich getting richer and the poor being put in the factories. You're sending your eight-year-old child to the factory to work all day, couldn't be educated, so on and so forth. So he had this big idealistic. And so what you would do with this big C communism is you would start off, and usually the government would, okay, we're not going to have a big government eventually, right? This is kind of utopia, but usually you had to start out with the government taking control of everything, ironically enough. And as you can imagine, no country's ever got past the government taking control of everything part. That's, that's where it always ended. It, it never quite made it to what Karl Marx supposedly said was going to happen in his book. But you would uh, abolish private property. 
No more private property. You don't own anything yourself at all. This is communism. You're going to share everything together. So there's no more private property. There's a collective ownership of means of production, meaning, I mean, central planning. Everything about your country would be run by the government and then ultimately turn over the collective community. So where are we going to invest our money? So, you know, maybe you would say, I have some extra money. I want to invest it. You would go to Ed Schroeder CPA maybe, and you'd say, Ed Schroeder CPA, where should I invest my money? In a a communist society, none of that. There is no individual investing at all. As a matter of fact, if one of you said, I want to start a nail salon, and I said, really? You want to start a nail salon? That sounds a great idea. I bet a lot of people around here would like to have their nails done. I could not invest my own money, give money to you to start a nail salon, right? There's no private property where you get to own the nails. The government tells you what your job's going to be. The government tells you everything. So I remember stories in communist Russia. The, the people were supposed to, uh, the factory was supposed to cert- produce a certain amount of shoes. So guess what they did? They produced all left shoes that were all black and they were all size nine or whatever. They were the same size. Because guess what? I mean, they just had to produce a certain amount of shoes. The government would tell them when to plant their crops. And so maybe your part of Russia, it was raining, and the other one, it wasn't. didn't matter. You planted them in the day. Can you imagine this logistical nightmare without computers? It would be a logistical nightmare with computers. But to try to control the entire means of production of a commune is just a complete, it didn't work, as you can imagine. Okay, but that's how it works. Essential planning, you eliminate unfair gaps in incomes. So this income inequality was a big deal, so therefore suddenly the person that owns everything wouldn't own everything, the government would own everything, and they would equalize the, the, the giving, and they, the government would, of course, always provide the provisions of necessar- necessaries of life, so that way people would always you know, not be starving in the streets. We don't really, I think most of I'm, I'm not old enough to remember, I don't, I've never seen people that weren't, uh, have major substance abuse problems, Okay. I'm not sure I've ever seen people starving in the street that didn't have major substance abuse problems. I'm sure it's happened in America. I'm sure some of you have seen it, but like I've never even seen it. I mean, go back just like 200 years, and this would be common. It would be shocking that I'd already be 35 years old and never seen anyone die in the street. I would be, it'd be wild that I'd never seen it, right? It doesn't happen here as much anymore, but it would have been common then, and so the communists really wanted to try to fix this sort of thing. Now, as I'm explaining this, I would also like to say, I'm giving like really broad brushes, so I'm sure there's like lots of details that you could fill in that I'm sure would be helpful. I'm just trying to explain it. So this is big C communism, okay? Big C communism. And let me read to you a quote from a guy named George Friedman. He says this. So, and I should clarify, communism is ultimate socialism. The government owns absolutely every piece of everything. Every, everything, 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 everything. There are no communist countries today. There are no fully communist. China, you can have private investment. I mean, they have a totalitarian government. They have a communist party, whatever. But you can start a company. You can spend money. You, you know, they have, you know, free trade. You can blah, 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 okay? It's, but George Friedman says this. What I can say is that the discussion of socialism is purely symbolic and intended to indicate a commitment to unspecified radical change. But structurally, there is little there that can substantially change the economic system because there has been a massive convergence between socialists rising from the French Revolution and the industrialists rising in the factories of Edinburgh 
The debate is functionally archaic, but perhaps of some symbolic power. So, Big C communism was invented in the 1800s by Karl Marx. Some countries tried to do it. They failed. No country's trying to do it in its complete form anymore. No, it, it just does not work. You cannot do this whole central play. Everyone figured out it is impossible. How do you make an iPhone? No one knows how to make an iPhone. No one can make every part of an iPhone, right? There are pieces. And it's like magic. I remember a guy worked in aircraft, and he this kind of opened my eyes to this. He'd say, Nobody knows how to make an aircraft. No one knows how to make a plane. I know how to make, I'm an engineer, I make my little part of the plane. And that is the only part of the plane I know how to make. And I could never build an entire plane, at least a modern one. I'd never build a modern plane. Right? It's just a total nightmare. So this is a situation that is big C communism, this economic theory that no one's really fully practicing anymore, so on and so forth. Everybody's this weird hybrid. You know, even in America, we have something called what? Social Security. Okay, giving your money to the government and then having them give it back to you when you're older is not full-blown capitalism. That is, that, that's not free market at work. Okay, that is not the free market at work. Everybody's kind of this messy hybrid. But you think to yourself, okay, so when we talk about the church and the early church having all things in common, what might it have to do with big C communism? The answer is pretty much not anything, probably, at all. I mean, think about what I'm talking about. These are economic theories developed later in the 1800s. This is, this is not what we're talking about here, okay? Big C communism and what you think about it has nothing to do with this, in my opinion. So you say, okay, so it's not a, really giving us any insight onto this economic system of big C communism. What about little c communism? So well, what do you mean little c communism? The best way I think of little c communism is something like this. Maybe some of you have watched a television show that has zombies in it or it's some kind of end of the world kind of thing and everyone's, everyone's you know, dying and everything's going terrible. And then there's your heroes that are running around trying to find food, whatever, in the end of the world scenario. And what do they end up finding? They find a community that's like a utopia. Everybody shares anything, everything. They're all working together. They're growing food. They're helping one another. No one owns anything. They all often wear the same clothes. And it's this wonderful thing that they're able to find this utopia because they're running away from the zombies or whatever the antagonist is, right? Now, of course, in the show, what always ends up happening? The utopia is run by some terrible person or whatever, right? It never works out quite that way. But that would be like a commune. So you could, within a country that's any form of government, have a little C communism. You could have a commune, which everybody owns everything in common, and everybody shares everything, and you share your private property. And you, you kind of get rid of it, and you, you have a little C communism. That wouldn't have anything to do with big C communism, but you could have that. So you say, so is this talking about little C communism? There's a writer named Roman Motero who says this. He, argue, he write, wrote a book about this, and he argues that while Marx might have articulated the slogan from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. There is evidence that early Christians somehow lived by that slogan since Luke reports that certain followers of Jesus held all things in common with one another following Pentecost. So we have an author that argues that the Acts is communism, little c communism, before Marx ever even said 
his big seed communism with. He writes a whole book about it. Okay? And then, of course, there's other passages in Acts that you might use to argue for this. Now, the full number of those who believed were one of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, and they had everything in commune, common, communism. Okay? And with great power, the apostles were given their, their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Let me tell you. When my brother said, and I was a junior high, to be fair, we don't do it right, and I read these passages, at that time, I didn't have a lot to say back. I didn't have a lot to say back. I went. Yeah, kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? Well, let's talk about this for a minute. Let me give you some biblical background. The first thing is important to kind of think about ancient times is the way that they viewed money. Okay? So there's a book called Through the Eye of a Needle, Wealth, the Fall of Rome, and the Making of Christianity in the West, 350 to 550 A.D. My brother-in-law suggested it. It's only 30-hour listen. No problem, right? So I powered through that baby. And you uh, listen to that thing, and what's so interesting about the way they thought about wealth in that time was money equals land. They're like almost, like, they almost can't be separate. I mean, they had money, right? They had money, so it's not like the money was totally tied. But you think about that world. It's like, how do you keep from starving to death? You have land, right? You have land. And in a world today where almost none of us own land, so we're like, oh, I, am a, I own land. Now, some of you may own large portions of land, but most of us, it's, oh, I own land. That tiny little plot of land that our house sits on that you probably couldn't grow much of anything, you certainly couldn't, couldn't feed a family on, right? I mean, own land, right? Compared to the ancient times, you're like, if you didn't own enough land, guess what? You starved to death. You starved to death. In the early 1900s, 80% of people in the United States were farmers. 80%. What do you think the percentage was in Rome? More than 80. A lot more than 80. I mean, land was money. And so when wealthy people would own all the land, guess what? They controlled everything. If you owned all the land, you controlled it all. Because without land, you could do nothing. So that's kind of how they viewed land. In the Christian origins of people's history of Christianity, Warren Carter writes, food shortages were frequent as a result of bad harvest and favorable weather, distribution, difficulties, speculation by traders, wars, taxes, and so forth. Shortages meant endemic undernourishment or chronic malnutrition, especially for the poor. This was the big deal that they cared about. And then if we think about what it says in Deuteronomy, it says this. So this is Deuteronomy. This is the Old Testament. Okay, God's telling them how they should run their country. So this is a theocracy. 
This is, you know, God's controlling everything. He picks the monarch. If it's working right, it almost never did. But theoretically, God picks the monarch. They run it. And even then, they weren't supposed to have a monarch, right? But the people demanded it, so on and so forth. Don't want to go through the entire nation of history of Israel. I'll surely miss a whole bunch of stuff. But it says this in Deuteronomy. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever is yours is with your brother, is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God being careful to all this commandment, I command you today. So people gain debts, and what happens every seven years? Those debts get wiped away. That is like income redistribution big time. Top-down income redistribution is what that would be, right? Because they were forced to do it. Okay. Okay. So we thinking about this. Now, some people have said something like this. Okay, well... This may be what they did, or it says they did, but surely it didn't work. And, let, and here's some explanations. Like this guy named Holtzman said, yeah, this was the ideal of what they were trying to do, but it didn't actually happen. It probably didn't actually work that way. It's like, okay, well, it doesn't say it didn't work, so you know, it seems like a stretch. Some have said this happened in a short time period, like at the very beginning they did this, but was abandoned when the widows and economically unproductive overran the system. So some suggest, oh, they did this at the start, but they gave it up. Some people argue, hey, they met in houses, so they must have had private property. So this is just an idea, ideal, something they were striving toward, but they never really practiced it. Some said, you know, what the real problem was is they thought Jesus' return was coming so soon that they did this, even though it was a terrible idea because they were overly zealous on when the return of Christ was going to be. They thought it was going to be too soon. And then once they realized it wasn't going to be like, you know, in, in six months, they, they changed. I mean, it doesn't say that anywhere, okay? But that is some of the ideas. This is what I'm going to argue is going on here. There is no question there is an idea of shared living in a sense. You cannot argue that they weren't giving each other material things, okay? I mean, it says it right there, okay? But there was an ideal in Greek that included communal living, and it would be something more like this. I'd say this. Hey, Alan, what's mine is yours. And I could say that to Alan today. Hey, Alan, what's mine is yours. It doesn't exactly mean that I signed the deed to my car to him, particularly, I'm just saying what's mine is yours. We have this friendship, this closest, that if he would ever you know, need my car, I, of course, would let him use it, right? So there was this Greek ideal that didn't abolish personal ownership. It just had this you know, incredible closeness in which, you know, hey, what's mine is yours and yours is mine. There was a letter to Plato that was written that said, and if you need anything that is yours, write to us, for my possessions, Plato, are by all rights yours even as they were to Socrates. 
So this writer says, hey, Plato, my stuff is yours, just like it was to Socrates. Well, how could he give it to both? Well, he technically didn't you know, sign over the deed to both, right? He, he just shared it with both. Also, we know that this selling of land and giving to one another was voluntary because of Acts chapter 5. It says in Acts chapter 5, 4, in Ananias' Sapphira, it talks about, um, while it said, while it remained unsold, did you not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is that you have contrived this deed in your heart? It, says, it was yours, it was yours. You didn't have to do this. But you lied about it, right? And Ananias and Sapphira. But it seems like they had a choice. So this giving was voluntary. And also, looking at the way Paul raises money in 2 Corinthians, right? When we were in 2 Corinthians, Paul keeps trying to, you know, please do this gift, do this gift, do this gift, right? Please, you know, just like the Macedonians did, Corinthians keep. Well, I mean, how could he be asking to raise funds if they'd ever, everybody all sold everything and they were distributing it, right? That wouldn't really work. But this sharing, when we look at this passage here, and we look at the wordage and the vocabulary, it seems like what is happening is this is like an ongoing thing. So this is not a everybody sells everything they have tomorrow, right? And then we all put it in a big pool and then we give it out, right? That would be communism. It's little c communism. Everyone sell everything. That's, that's not what's happening. I mean, why would Paul raise money? Why would it be voluntary if that's really what you were doing? But what they were doing was they were having an incredible amount of connection to one another as far as helping which they're out. In a world in which if you didn't have land, or let's say you had land. Let's say you worked really hard. Let's say you put all your effort into it. You were doing great. You made just, you went out just fine last year. And guess what happened? It doesn't rain. Oh, I know. That's okay. You got farming insurance, right? There's no farming insurance. So you could be the hardest worker in the whole church. You could have been putting more effort than everybody else. And guess what you might have become? Destitute. The weather didn't fit with what you were trying to do. So it seems like there was this real sense in which they helped each other out. But it was not. I do not think little C communism, everybody sold everything and shared it together. It was not the complete abolishment of all of their private property. Property. Also, I would say this. In America, it's, can, it's hard to know how to accomplish these things. It's hard. Most people that have substance abuse problems, and I'm, I'm summarizing here. I'm sure this is not true all the time. But often, people that have substance abuse problems have this other person in their life that is often labeled by the experts as the enabler, is the enabler. And so just saying, well, this person with substance abuse problems, we just need to sell what we have and give them money. Actually, we know for someone with a substance abuse problem, that is not helping them at all. That is like helping them die quicker. So trying to navigate in 2019 how to do exactly what they did is difficult. But I think there are some principles that we need to think about here this morning that are important. First of all, the people clearly saw money as owned by God. 
right? When some, another believer was in need, they didn't think, hey, mine is mine, yours is yours, right? They, they, saw it was owned by, they, they thought their money was owned by God. I think they had to have had that view. They really helped one another, and they saw the importance of community. You know, some people might say, why do you go to church? Why do you go to church? What's worse, why would you ever give money when you go to church? I mean, that's like real bad. What a, what a waste. Why would you go to church? And there's lots of reasons beyond this, but I, I wanted to share an article I read from the USA Today. So the USA Today is not like, you know, Christian magazine, exactly, right? Or whatever, or newspaper, whatever. It says this by Tyler Vanderweel. If one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would our society place on it? Going a step further, if research quite conclusively showed that when consumed just once a week, this concoction would reduce mortality by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period. How urgently would we want to make that publicly available? The good news is that this miracle drug, religion, and more specifically, regular church attendance, is already in reach of most Americans in fact, there's a good chance it's just a short drive away. Indeed, health and religion are very much connected. Professor Vanderwill's new research with colleagues at Harvard, building on more than 20 years of prior work in this area, suggested that attending church services brings about better physical and mental health. Adults who do so at least once a week versus not at all have been shown to have a significant lower risk of dying over the next decade and a half. The results have been replicated in enough studies and populations to be considered quite reliable. While the science does not endorse one faith over another or suggest what society is to do with such information, but there are two opportunities, one society, one personal, for the good to come from this work. The news media, the academy, and the broader public could use this new understanding to weigh religion's greater societal value. And for the individuals, this research provides a not-so-subtle invitation to reconsider what religion can do for them. The article goes on. It gives the specifics of health benefits, you know. From the very beginning of the church, from the very beginning, community of the church was incredibly important. I think that showing up to a service and leaving and never getting involved or never having a friend, well, obviously can have benefits. The community which the church provides is an incredibly important aspect of church life. When you get sick one day and you need help, maybe you're too far from family and they can't be there, who's going to be there? When you have rears of relationship with people and they know they can trust you, 
and you've been working together and you fall, fall on hard times, who are the people that are going to be there for you? I'm not talking about one-time drop-ins where I would drop in and ask for money. I'm talking about a community which you know one another for a long time, for years, develop relationships, you develop friendships, you come together. You know, so oftentimes, even when churches have preachers that can't preach or, or musicians that can't play, we still come together because the community of the church is so incredibly important. And while it's not going to look exactly like it did in Acts chapter 2 and, and what they did, we always want to foster the community in coming together. Always want to make sure we're united. And you know, one of the main things that we do when we come together, that we share together, that help us, brings us together, and says we're a community and we do this together, is communion. It's communion. It's something that all things in common, right? And while we're not going to sell all of our stuff, really, we do have this communal aspect to our relationship to one another, and communion is an important part of that. It says in verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, almost surely they ate meals together. Breaking bread probably includes communion. They received their food with gladness and general, generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. They had this community together. The people on the outside saw the community that they had, and they found favor. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. We all want to be a part of a community. We all want to be a part of something where we're not just an island, where we can have people to connect with, to grow together, to cry together, to laugh together. And I think coming together for church and having that revolve around our relationship with Christ is the best place that could be done. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this morning. As we prepare for communion this morning, I just pray that you would be with us. And, and Lord, while we focus on the, on the bread and the cup and when we think about what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, I just think about, Lord, the community we want to build here at Sunnyside. About how important the relationships are. About how maybe we can serve one another in another way, a new way. That maybe the support we can provide and in this world, 2019, we know it's not going to look the same, but maybe there's a way. Maybe there's that phone call that we know we should have made. Maybe there's that card we, we know we should have sent. Lord, I just pray that we would cultivate that community. Nothing, nothing like this comes for free. Nothing easy. It doesn't just happen. Lord, I just pray you be with us. I just pray... Be with us as we take communion. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.